0: Welcome to fine-tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Taylor, whose writings on the industry you can regularly read over on The Wrap, and whose musings on the Mission Impossible movies you can listen to on Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, he and I are recording this week's show on Sunday, November 12th. And what was it, three days ago, four days ago, you were at the world premiere of Disney Wish at the El Cap, right?
1: That's right. Not the ship, Jim. The movie Wish. (laughs) I was there at the El Cap. Did you see the
0: drone show, by the way? I wanted to ask you about that because the thing that kind of makes me crazy is they do these spectacular drone shows, particularly Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris, But we keep hearing states that, oh, they can't have them here due to insurance issues. And it's like, no, wait a minute. They had a drone show over the El Cap over Hollywood Boulevard, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, it was interesting
1: because I was coming a little bit later because it was a pre-party. So I was sort of in no rush to get there and mill around. So as I was kind of cresting the hill, I see the drone show essentially while I was driving to the El Cap, which was really insane because it was, they had the star, they had, you know, coming in November. They had, I mean, all of this uh, crazy yeah. iconography. It was really, really spectacular. Mm-hmm. So I can
0: only imagine what it was okay. like
1: on the ground looking up at the star yeah. kind of hovering
0: behind Hollywood Boulevard. I think the other thing we need to mention is as you're driving there, there. Huge news. I mean, the the SAG strike, 118 days. We get the announcement that it's over as of 12.01 the following... Yes. So, yeah, there was nobody at
1: the premiere, but I can say that the (gasps) mood was very the morning after obama was elected kind of you know everyone was in a really good mood there was uh, a sense of hope a, a sense of okay. optimism and of course mm-hmm. you know immediately my phone is blowing up uh, with publicists saying you know we have talent now
0: everything suddenly went to 11 as of thursday morning you know the effect of do you want to talk to somebody? <laughs> you, know, you can talk to anybody you want yeah. because everybody's available now. But speaking of publicity, did they show the Inside Out 2 trailer in front of Wish at the El Cap? They
1: did not, night? no. Uh, okay. Although, you know, speaking you know, of the stars, the junket was on Friday. I was at Walt Disney Animation Studios all day. Although mm-hmm. I did take a little mm-hmm. detour to go check out Walt Disney's office, which I had never done before and was oh, very special. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But uh, you know I walked in and I was like, "Oh, Chris Pine is here. Oh, Ariana Debose is here." Mm-hmm. Interesting because they were not on the, you know, sheet for the Junket because it was sent out before the strike was mm-hmm. over. And it and it mm-hmm. was sent out at a time when it was looking like the strike was going to be going on for a while. So there was no no warning that the stars were actually going to be at the Junket and then they were there. So that was kind of fun as well.
0: Did we get to chat with either one of them? No, two? because I, 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 they
1: were incredibly. They were so. Mm. The press day was Thursday and Friday. Those were the two days, and those two, they didn't get cleared until Friday to be at the junket. So there was it was an extremely uh, truncated schedule. But hopefully, I will get to talk to them later, okay. particularly Chris Pine, okay. because. I Mm -hmm. loved him so much in Dungeons and Dragons earlier this year. And Mm. I just ordered, Jim, you'll appreciate this, my Mm. hallmark ornament of the fat dragon from that movie.
0: (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. Very cool. I have to admit the reason I was asking about Rihanna and uh, Chris is that if they were coming into the press event that quickly— They hadn't had time to really be coached on their talking points, and I would have been fascinated to hear what you would have gotten out of those interviews. Yes.
1: I think, yeah, she she showed up at a DGA screening, I think, of Wish the night before. So Mm -hmm. you're right, Jim. They The strike was over, and they were working again. So, yeah, yeah, it was very interesting.
0: Everybody in town, I mean, you know, just... The day or so afterwards, all of the release dates that shifted around because it's like, okay, we can get back to work. And what can be in front of the cameras next week? What can be in front of the cameras after January, after the holidays? I would imagine, you know, especially the various beats you work at The Wrap, this is their traffic controller country, right?
1: Yeah, it's like what is going to stay, what is going to move, what is going to return? There was talk, you know, for a few hours of like, is Dune going to come back And just show up, you know, Mm -hmm. next month or something. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. I don't know if you saw James Gunn tweet it out, just, you know, we've been working we've been hard at work on pre production Mm -hmm. and artwork and all this stuff. So Mm -hmm. Superman Legacy will make its date in twenty twenty five. I imagine that the Batman sequel will also do that, but there's Mm -hmm. still so many things up in the air. And you saw that Disney's schedule completely shifted around. On Thursday,
0: yeah, it did, it did, and if we're going to talk to Marvel's side of the Marvels sort of street for a second, I mean, Drew and I are recording again on Sunday afternoon where we, we have the actual totals for how the Marvels did. What forty-seven is what they're projecting. That's what they're projecting now, yeah, yeah, and that is actually toward the low side of what what they were hoping to do and so uh, for me i i was just fascinated about how they literally cleared the schedule next year it's like we get one marvel movie we get deadpool yes <laughs> were you hearing the same thing you know that that i was hearing from from folks at disney tv absence makes the heart grow fonder we hope yeah But speaking of things coming back, again, we were talking a moment ago about Inside Out 2, uh, the trailer that will be out in front of a wish when it drops in theaters next week or thereabouts. Disney seems very high on how many times this was viewed over the past 24 hours after it dropped. It was, what, 157 million views and 78 million of those were over on TikTok and blew the previous record holder, Frozen 2, out of the water. But almost immediately there was the talk about the whole Mindy Colling and uh, Bill Hader no longer uh, voicing disgust and fear. Though, uh, given what happened with Bill Hader on the original Inside Out, how he went from basically being the number two to just one of the members of the pack, I guess that's not really a surprise. But
1: uh, I think it had more to do with money. I mean, I don't, I, so, somewhere it was reported that Elizabeth Banks is mm-hmm. getting, or not Elizabeth Banks, God, that's the original version of Inside Out. Amy Poehler is getting <laughs> like 5 million plus uh, part of the back end. I can't imagine them offering uh, Mindy Kaling and. Uh,
0: Lois Smith is back. Uh, Lewis Black is back. Obviously, with this trailer, we've got to. Meet Anxiety, who's being voiced by Maya Hawke. And we have a teaser poster that suggests we're going to get to meet at least three more emotions. And one of them, you know, Ennui, you know, wasn't Ennui supposed to be in the f- the first? I don't know or- if they ever
1: developed Ennui as a character, but I remember that it was, yeah, one of those emotions when they were working with the child psychologists or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, Pixar in there research they love it um but that was one of the emotions that that was forwarded as a potential character so i'm very excited about this i'm very excited about kelsey mann who was the story head of story on onward getting a a feature he Mm -hmm. also directed the great Mm -hmm. monsters you short party central which i know we both love um so yeah i'm very happy he's uh getting to direct a, a movie i'm very excited
0: and and it's important to note here that Meg Lafave is also back. She wrote the, the, or co-wrote the verse film. So a certain part of the band is getting back together. And, of course, Mr. Doctor is now watching over all of Pixar and given his association with the original Inside Out. So... But yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm I really hoping that this new Inside Out film works. And speaking of new stuff, want to point out that the news portion of today's show is brought to you by Touring Plan's own travel agency. If you're thinking of heading back to Walt Disney World Resort, not too distant future... These obviously knowledgeable folks can help you plan your dream vacation, even toss in a free subscription to the Turing Plan. So headed to Florida anytime soon. Please check them out at TuringPlans.com backslash travel. Just to touch for a moment again on Inside Out, original film came out in 2015. We have our Inside Out 2 coming out in June of 2024, which... It makes me think of the Peanuts movie, which came out that same year, 2015, and we just learned in this past week that Apple's developing a new Peanuts feature film with a lot of uh, the folks who worked on the 2000 film coming back. I mean, Carrie Kirkpatrick is co-writing the screenplay, uh, but also working with one of uh, Charles Schultz's, I want to say that's his grandson, Craig Schultz. Yes. Yeah, all right. Craig and Brian, and also Cornelius Iliano, who wrote the script for the two thousand and fifteen film, and they've even got Steve Martino coming back to to direct the film. And but what particularly excited me is that Bonnie Arnold's gonna produce this. I've been a fan of Bonnie for years. I mean, she was the what the the, the producer of the original Toy Story. Then decamped to Paris and produced Tarzan for Disney. And then I so enjoyed Over the Hedge at DreamWorks. And I guess they came within inches of making a sequel to that, but they never turned the key on it. And then she wound up as, you know, the producer of the three how to Turn Your Dragon movies. So I was unaware that she left DreamWorks to head over to Apple, but it's great news that she's riding herd on this new Peanuts movie, which supposedly takes the characters to the big city. Had you heard that this was in the No, or? I
1: had no idea. And I, yeah, I was shocked that it was everybody from the original movie because that movie is great, but it was not a hit. And I wonder who's going to be handling the animation for it if they're going to go in that same kind of... 2.5 d look of that original movie
0: that was an interesting look i mean to take that distinctive charles m schultz line work with the, the fuzzy edge you were describing there and then sort of dropping it in to a stylized reality that did resemble what the world looked like from the comic strip but still made it it real yeah good was that how they described it back in the day two and a half days? i mean that's just how i sort of I
1: mean, it's so interesting yeah, how flat it was. But there was real texture, and and more importantly, it just had the spirit of those old specials.
0: It did. It did. So, I, you know, I was just reading in the past week, somebody on social media was talking about the fact that I enjoyed the penis movie in 2015, but I also grew up on the, the original Charles M. Schultz strip, and it's like... Charlie Brown wasn't necessarily a life-affirming strip. You know, Chuck, as Peppermint and Patty called him, failed more times than he succeeded. And the whole notion of, you know, to go to a life-affirming Peanuts movie was, wow, that, that's kind <laughs> of an interesting take on it. So that's the thing. Oh, they're going to the big city. It's like, well, I hope this ends well. And Speaking of hoping that it ends well, of course, this coming Friday... We have the Trolls Band Together arriving in theaters. Did you see that this has already been in theaters in Denmark since October 12th?
1: Is that where the Trolls toy line is from? Is
0: that why? (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that's it exactly. Yeah, the the Trolls toys actually debuted in Denmark back in 1959. what was fascinating is they came to the States In 1964, literally in the same window of time as the Beatles, and evidently for a time, there was the joke about, you know, well, you can't come to the United States without a distinctive hairstyle. So the the Beatles had the mop tops and the, the trolls had the way they looked. But, yeah, evidently because that's where they came from, it came out first. Now, you've seen it, and it's coming out this week. So are you allowed to talk about it yet? Or Yeah,
1: I, I thought it was a lot of fun, and I think it's a great kind of cap to this trilogy. I'm sure there will be more adventurers in the Trolls world. But, yeah, all the different places they go to in this one are really special. Yeah, there's this, I forget what it is. I think it's called Mount Rageous. is this. <laughs> sort of new area that's kind of inspired by Vegas and kind of futurism but also has characters that are like Fleischer Brothers style kind of characters and it's absolutely fascinating
0: speaking of which have you heard about the Betty Boop musical that's trying out in Chicago right now No, I have not. I literally read a story about it this week, and it's Jerry Mitchell, the guy who directed Aladdin on Broadway, and it's trying out in Chicago. It's supposed to be headed to New York fairly soon after that, and the way they're describing it now is if you liked the Barbie movie, you will love Boop. It's Betty Boop leaving the cartoon world and coming out to the real world but still being the Betty Boop that we know from, you know, the Fleischer cartoons. It's just one of these things where it's like, where did this come from? But it's it's fully cast. It's about to begin performances out there. So if any of our fine-tuning listeners, or for that matter, anybody who listens to Disney, the issue that sort of thing, gets to see this show in Chicago, we'd love to hear what you think of it. Because they've yeah. been talking about doing something with Betty Boop for Broadway forever. So it, you know, it finally got out. But that in theory would be coming to Broadway in 2024, and pivoting back to animation, we were just talking about Trolls band together, and if we look ahead to the slate for next year, that now the the sag after strike is over, so these are actually going to come out, right? You know that, that we got Kung Fu Panda four, uh, March fourth of next year. We have the Garfield movie coming out in May 24th, and this one, Mark Dindale directing the Garfield movie. Yep. And a screenplay by David Reynolds of Finding Nemo, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's quite a pair to be behind a Garfield movie. Well,
1: David Reynolds also uh, wrote the script for Emperor's New Groove.
0: He did, he did. So that thing, you know, at some point... In the future, we're going to have to have a a conversation about the whole kingdom of the sun. I had a friend on the inside during the production of that, and it was just such a, you know, the the word that properly describes this, I can't say, on a family-friendly podcast. (laughs) But um, it rhymes with fit show. (laughs) There we go. There we go. Yeah. Or Buster Buck, you know, just something to that effect. But but yeah, yeah. all of the stories coming off of that project and and the fact that Mark and David come over the hill and take the component parts and create such a ridiculously entertaining film. Oh, speaking of which, I, I don't know if you can see it Behind me in the cat tree, but Nancy and I added to our Disney cat plush collection earlier this month. It turns out, as part of the Disney 100, they created an Isma as cat uh plush. Oh, I saw that. It's so good. It is so good. In kind of a, a really hideous way. I mean, it's clutching the vial and it looks really evil, and it's like. How many of these did they think they were going to actually sell? I mean, you know, it's like, well, we got Jim and Nancy. That's one. All right. Anyway, back to uh, animated films for 2024. We were just talking about Inside Out 2, and what? I, you know, less than two weeks later, we we then get Despicable Me 4. Are you hearing that Mufasa, The Lion King, is still going to make it for July of next year?
1: No, it's it's December. 20th or something next year it's it's going to be the big christmas movie yeah i had
0: heard the same thing this week it was just the effect of especially given disney's slate issues and then are we allowed to talk about the new shrek movie because that that i mean you saw the story right no it was the story some poor production person over at DreamWorks uh, was applying for a new job and put their resume out online and among the information you know what are you currently working on oh well I'm I'm helping with consumer product creation for Shrek 5 you know which is due out in theaters in 2025 and the entertainment press fell all over this like wolves to the effect of is this actually confirmation that Shrek 5 is finally coming over the hill I mean that's Kind of the worst-kept secret for a while now, but they listed it as part of their resume as coming in, in 2025. And the end of Puss in Boots sort of insinuated they were on their way to Far, Far Away, potentially to meet up with Shrek and Donkey and the group. But again, are we allowed to talk about this? I don't think it's 25 that's there we go say. <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah all right thank you folks that's an odd denial we were looking for okay yeah,
1: yeah. no it, it's it's absolutely coming i mean i think that shrek kind of has permeated the culture in a really interesting way i'm sure you saw the shrek crocs that came out a few weeks ago Jim. i did i did yeah so that like you know all these kids who love shrek are, mm-hmm. are ready for another one and i think that Puss in Boots 2 really primed the pump, like you were saying, in a really great mm-hmm. way. So Yeah,
0: yeah. And there's a part of me that's genuinely hoping that, that you, know, uh, you know, the Puss in Boots 2 had such a wonderful look. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that continues. By the way, uh, since we're talking about Future Slate, we talked on a recent fine-tuning about uh, Wild Robot, uh, Chris Sanders' project for DreamWorks, that still supposed to come out in 2024? Yeah. That one that one's gonna make
1: it. Yeah, I okay. think that's that's fall twenty four. Yeah. Okay.
0: But we also have uh things like Ultraman Rising, Spellbound, and That Christmas. Again, undated, but supposedly coming out in in two thousand twenty-four. And then of course we have The Day the World Blew Up, a Looney Tune movie, which is now going to be released theatrically, whereas Coyote vs. Acme which a lot of people uh, have been talking about this Finnish film that now we're not going to see that it was the best mix of live action and animation since Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I'm almost hesitant to talk about this project because I've been following this forever, Drew. I mean, you know, I, I remember reading the Ian Fraser story uh, in The New Yorker back in, Nineteen ninety, and, and in fact, I, I have a good friend who wrote one of the very first drafts of this thing. I mean, this project has been heading toward production for decades, and they finally got a script that everybody loved last year. It was greenlit to be. It was originally going to be. Well, this this dates the story right here. It was going to be on HBO Max. You know, remember when there was an HBO Max, and. It was greenlit in 2020, and it shot in New Mexico last year. I mean, you must have seen some of the photos, you know, that leaked out from the set of the lawyer character John Cena played, you know, his strip mall office kind of a thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I saw. Did you see the video that they put up from behind the scenes that was very quickly taken down by Warner Brothers lawyers? But it was the other great thing was that piece of music that Stephen Price shared that kind of was a classical piece of music but had the the Roadrunner... Meep the meeps, meep, meep. meep. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean,
0: this is what fascinates me about this. Okay, so again, you have John Sienna, guy starring in a very popular show for Max, Peacemaker, uh, you know, in fact, second season already in the works, and James Gunn, the head of DC Studios, produced this, actually, and, and not only that worked on the story, they spent all sorts of money... In New Mexico, there was a crew of 180. They hired 49 actors out of the local community. And evidently, there's some massive crowd scenes in this thing because they talked about 2,100 New Mexicans who were hired for background talent. And while they're shooting this, the story last year about Batgirl was going to be put in the vault and never come out, and they're going to take a write down on it. And same window of time, we got the the word about Scoob Holiday Haunt. In fact, you were just talking about the, the gentleman who was working on the score for Coyote versus Acme, and that I think was the toughest part of Scoob Holiday Haunt. They let them actually take it in and do the final scoring of the movie, and then just threw it in the vault never to be seen again. I mean, that I just don't understand this. But $72 million supposedly spent on this thing. And they'd already done test screenings. In fact, David Green, the director of this thing, this past week, was talking about how it had evidently tested really, really well. And Bill Damoschak, the gentleman who came over from DreamWorks after 20-plus years of working that side of the street who just took over the head of the Warner's Animation Group in February, and he was, he was at Annecy in June, still talking up this movie. And in fact, when you were there, did, did you get to the Warner's presentations at all? Or?
1: No, I didn't. I yeah, I didn't see anything about this. But you're right. Everybody, who I mean, they were screening it pretty regularly, and a lot of filmmakers and other people have seen it and have just told me how. Wonderful it was. And, it's yeah, it's a huge shame that we're never going to get to see it. I, I don't understand the thinking behind this. I mean.
0: Same thing here. <sighs> I mean, was it literally a Sophie's Choice thing? Because think about it. Within the past month, we found out about The Day the Earth Blew Up, a Looney Tune movie being released theatrically. And as early as the middle of the summer, weren't they talking about potentially looking for buyers for that?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the Warner, some of the Warner stuff is going to Prime Video. Like okay. I think the uh, Batman show that J.J. Mm-hmm. Abrams is working mm-hmm. on. And there are a couple of other things that are going to Apple or going to Amazon. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it could have been a very easy layup to just sell this off. I don't really understand why you're taking it right off.
0: In a you know, weird sort of way, it circles back to we were just talking about the box office for the Marvels. That low end of what was projected, forty-seven million opening weekend North America, and the notion was that you had the seventy-two million-dollar, you know, to make movie. Again, again, originally made for HBO Max was going to be released theatrically. Evidently, the box office projections came in, and it it was one of these things where it's like, this is just not going to do it theatrically. You know, uh, John Cena. Is it a big enough name to get people for the opening weekend? So it actually made more sense for the company to take a $30 million write-down on a $72 million to produce film rather than pump money into promotion and buying TV ads and that sort of thing. And a a film that supposedly is tested as well as it has, that has wonderful mix of live action and animation. It sounds like a film like you and I would especially love, given our, our love of Roger Rabbit and all that. In fact, wasn't it Robert Zemeckis who actually deliberately stretched the time that, Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was set in so he could sneak the Roadrunner and the Coyote into the finale. They're they're (laughs) singing Smile Darn darn Your Smile. I I think he deliberately stretched the time to 47 so he could slip them in. What have you heard?
1: I mean, I've just heard, yeah, that this was a, you know, he thought he could make more money writing it off and, you know, it's absurd, you know. Hundreds of people worked on this. I heard the animation was absolutely gorgeous, um, but yeah, it's it's a shame. It is a real shame. Somewhere in an, another dimension, they're enjoying Batgirl
0: and there we go, Scoob <laughs> Two <laughs> and right.
1: okay. Coyote versus Acme.
0: There we go. Thank you, thank you for the tie back, <laughs> back to the Marvels. Yes, yes. somewhere else in yes. the multiverse, people are enjoying yes, these exactly. movies. Yes, exactly. Okay. Anyway, folks, when we get back, we will talk about uh, another animated film that celebrated its 50th anniversary this week and also had kind of an interesting production history. Before uh, we get started here, we've been talking about anniversaries and that sort of thing. And Drew sent me a, a wonderful photograph that you took on the the Disney lot can you talk about the trophy the statue the well the, yeah I think
1: I think that was actually what they were going to give Bernie on the 70th anniversary of him working for the company which is just insane and I sent that to you Jim because I had never I hadn't seen it before but also it's just insane to think of anybody working at a company for 70 years I mean uh,
0: it's just wrong. crazy
1: it's yeah. crazy and and he contributed so much to the company up until his you know Last year on this planet, I mean, he was in the Once Upon a Studio short. Yep. he was work- He yep. worked on Strange World. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's crazy how much he he did and continued to do for the studio.
0: What Drew is talking about is that they created this this art piece for Bernie that was going to be presented to him on his 70th anniversary with the company, and it's Winnie the Pooh and his mirror, right from the House at Pooh Corner.
1: Yeah. And it it's a it's a beautiful piece of work. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really it's a it's really amazing. Yeah, I was I was blown away. It was very nice to see. So that's why I sent it to you, Jim, and I said, "I know who will appreciate this." Yeah,
0: no. Just just thank you. I, I But it, was it there in the lobby or where do they have it?
1: Yeah, it was in the lobby uh right underneath the staircase that went up to what used to be Roy's office and is now uh, conference rooms with these kind of like placards in front of it, uh, okay. <laughs> because they are not acknowledging that that whose office that used to be. It's a conference room, nothing to see here, Jim.
0: There we go. Yeah, but but they'll do Walt's office. All right. A- anyway, yeah. anyway, anyway. Okay. Early this week, November eighth, we had the fiftieth anniversary of the release of Robin Hood, and I know we've talked about this film a little bit on uh, previous editions of this podcast so we're going to narrow cast in on an aspect of the Disney company from the 60s and 70s that me personally I I loved and it was like how Walt tended to cast movies almost out of tv guide you know I mean it was you know uh, for example the Dick Van Dyke show started on CBS in 1961 and Walt had seen Dick on Broadway and Bye Bye Birdie, but really came to know him from his work on the Dick Van Dyke show, which had a kind of a shaky first season that they didn't really catch fire uh, till season two. And But Walt saw what, saw what he liked and cast Dick as Bert in Mary Poppins. But the other one from the same era, there was a a sitcom that ran on NBC, uh, just ahead of the wonderful world of color. I, it was called Ensign O'Toole and it starred Dean Jones. And Walt could literally turn on his own show. But, you know, sometimes he'd sit down like 15, 20 minutes beforehand and, and turn it on. And and there's Dean Jones. And it's like, he's a nice young man. I should hire him to be in some of my stuff. So that's how he wound up in That Darn Cat and and that sort of thing. But if Walt saw you in a show and liked you, the call was made. And so, for example, uh, Richard Deacon, who played Mel Cooley on The Dick Van Dyke Show, he was in the No Mobile. Maury Amsterdam, who played Buddy Sorrell, wound up in The Horse in the Grey Flannel Suit. And mind you, it could also cut both ways. I mean, for example, Brian Keith had played, you know, a kind of grumpy dad in The Parent Trap in 1961. So when it came time for CBS, which who was looking for a dad for family affair, I, you know, and it's just sort of like ooh, Brian Keith, he did nice work in that Disney thing, Parent Trap. Let's get him. But when we lose Walt in December of 66, the studio, you know, there's the, the famous story about, you know, you had a, a company that, that kept sort of repeating the mantra. Well, what would Walt do? And so, you know, here they are, they're working on the first animated teacher after Walt dies, the Aristocats. And it's like, well, Walt liked people on television get a show that had just started up, Green Acres. Uh, it had Ava Gabor. It had Pat Petrum. It had, I mean, George Lindsay was actually on the Andy Griffith show uh, playing Goober. But they decided, let's grab those three television actors and have them voice characters and that sort of thing. And in fact, in the case of the Aristocats, the two dog characters—you remember those—Drew, uh, Napoleon, and Lafayette. Yes. They put these two—the sequence in the middle of the movie—two dogs, out in the French countryside, that intercept Edgar the Butler, who you know, who has the is taking the Duchess and her kittens out to the countryside to, to get rid of them, and you know, this that crazy slapstick. Sequence and uh, the interesting thing is they began to test the movie and people are like oh those dogs were great are they coming back into the movie and it's like well they are now so they they not only wrote a second scene for them to basically another big slapstick scene but they actually gave those two characters the end gag of the movie and then that one manages to make a good chunk of money. And so it's like, okay, now here comes Robin Hood, which is the first film that you know, well, Walt had signed off on the idea of doing the Aristocats, but they had no idea what to do after the Aristocats. And so Ken Anderson pitches the idea for Robin Hood, but again, this is a Disney. you know that's doing the, well, what would Walt do? And it's like, okay, we'll cast even more television people. And because Pat Puttrum and George Lindsay had done such a great job as Napoleon Alafia, they're back in Robin Hood. And they even bring in Ken Curtis, who, who played Festus in Gunsmoke. And we've talked about how Robin Hood was a film that Disney was just too cautious about. I mean, you know the whole the Phony King of England scene, about how much of that footage, it's out of Snow White, it's out of Jungle Book, it's even out of Aristocats, you know, that, that they yeah. just cobbled that number together out of recycled pieces of animation. And that was supposedly largely on the back of Woolly Reitherman. Don Hahn told me the story once about how the guys would literally board a scene for the movie and then Wooly would come in and walk up to the storyboard and start to fold drawings down to the effect of, we don't have a guy in the building who can do that sort of animation. We don't have a guy who can do that sort of animation. And, you know, we don't have the talent to do this. And it impacted the films. I don't know if you've ever seen the drawings that are out there for the real finale of Robin Hood, where... Prince John is a real villain. He's going to kill Robin Hood and is stopped by his brother, King Richard, returning. The boards for that are out there. But Wooly just did not believe that Disney had the talent or the staff to do that. And then behind that, the battles that happened on the very next project, uh, The Rescuers, they went down a road for the better part of a year, year and a half where it wasn't Penny and Devil's Bayou that needed to be rescued. It was it was a polar bear in Central Park Zoo that was voiced by Louis Prima. You must have heard about this.
1: No, I've never heard. Of, I, I am not the biggest rescuers fan, so I have not done extensive digging, uh, but that is... That is insane that that was the original.
0: This kind of kept happening over and over again. I, I, for example, if we jump ahead now to Fox and the Hound, I mean, you, you heard the stories about the Phil Harris and Charo number, right?
1: In The Fox and the Hound?
0: In The Fox. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we are two thirds of the way into the movie. The uh, widow Tweed has been forced to release Todd into the wild. And Todd meets Vixie, the female fox that's voiced by Sandy Duncan. And he feels something in his chest, but he doesn't know how to act on it. And it's at this moment that Todd comes across a swamp. And in the swamp, it, this is where all of these cranes fly in annually and do their mating dance. And so there's a huge musical number Where it's the male crane, voiced by Phil Harris, dances with a, you know, a female crane, voiced by Charo. Big comic number, but the whole notion is the cranes show Todd, you know, how you, you know, you have to make a big statement if you want to get a lady in your life. And it was so out of tune with, out of style of the rest of the movie and remember, the Fox and the Hound initially was supposed to be the next Bambi. And we talked previously on the show about how Chief was originally supposed to die. And then, they, again, you can't make children cry in a Disney film. So, you know, he gets hit with a train, but he lives. And it was actually this number with the cranes that the younger animators basically went to Ron Miller and said, you have to take, will you ride them off in this movie? He's ruining it. He's trying to make a 1960s comedy. We're trying to make our Bambi. And basically, that's what happened. They forced Woolley into retirement, largely because he would just sort of say, we don't have a guy in the building who can do this, or I know how to fix this. You know, let's get some guys from television. So it's a part of the Disney story. that they, they don't necessarily like to tell. In fact, I, I think then if you uh, you get the Nine Old Men book, which you know sort of walks you through the careers of folks like Mark Davis and Ward Kimball and, and the like, and and the Wooly story, they kind of touch on that a little bit. You know, he he wouldn't leave, so they asked him to go. And speaking of going, Mr. Taylor has places to go, so we have to wrap up here. But before we do, again, I want to remind you, folks. That if you're not listening to Light the Fuse, the the official Mission Impossible podcast, you are missing out on so much great modern Hollywood storytelling. Cause again, you know, everybody who works on the, the Mission Impossible film series, eventually come and sit down with Drew and Charles Hood. And and again, they'll tell you all sorts of wonderful stories of, you know, about Ghost Protocol or Dead Reckoning or, or the like. But it's the other movies they work on. In fact, that to me is my favorite part of what you guys do. You get these people to talk about all of the other stuff they worked on. And you know, I just learned so much when I, I listened to your podcast. So Oh, so well that means a lot. Yeah, so what's going on this week?
1: Well, this week is our first episode with Dale Dye, which is just such a fun interview. Uh, If you don't know who Dale Dye is, he has been the sort of leading um, Hollywood um, technical advisor for war movies like since Platoon, I believe, was his first one. And he uh, plays Barnes in the first Mission Impossible movie, but... These two episodes are just so full of great details and great anecdotes from Mission Impossible and all the other movies that he's worked on, including, you know, Saving Private Ryan and all of these movies. So it it is really, really a special chat. So you'll definitely want to tune in for those.
0: Oh, that sounds cool. And we also have some other podcasts here you might want to check out. Uh, we, of course, have... Disney Dish, which I do with Lentesto. We also have Marvelous Disney, which I do with Aaron Adams, the talented gentleman who edits all the podcasts here. We also have uh, Looking at Lucasfilm, and Brian and I need to get a new one of those out the door shortly. I should also mention Len and Mai's other project, uh, Disney Unpacked. This month, with Jim Schul, we are talking about the creation of Crush's Coaster, the first spinning coaster at a, a Disney park, but The other reason you might want to go over and check out what we're up to on Patreon is just literally yesterday, we were up in Plymouth, Massachusetts, shooting a special bit of Thanksgiving related content where we will talk about how the Columbia sort of owes its existence at Disneyland to the Mayflower 2, or for that matter, turkeys getting pardoned by presidents and going to live at Disney theme parks, or even the history of uh, the turkey legs at the Disney parks. Look for that to, to bubble up on Patreon and perhaps YouTube uh, later this month. And social media, Drew.
1: So I'm on everything as Drew Tailored, like a mm-hmm. tailored shirt. And mm-hmm. Jim, where can people find you?
0: Twitter, X, uh, Instagram is Jim Hill Media. And over on Facebook is Jim Hill Media News. Uh, one final thing, folks, before we head out the door here. If you could please go over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review not just the show you're listening to right now, fine-tuning, but also light diffuse. fuse. Uh, that would be very helpful. And I guess that's going to do it for this week. So thanks for listening, folks, and Drew and I will be back soon.